Good morning. Ah, there you are. So this is part of our uh, series on confidence in God. Uh, and the title for this particular message is that God actually wants us to put all our eggs in one basket. And we grow up learning just the opposite. In fact, it's a, it's a lack of wisdom to put all your eggs in one basket. You don't put all your investments in stocks or all your investments in bonds. You diversify, as they say. Uh, because we're trying to eliminate risk, manage risk, or reduce risk. And so we don't put all our eggs in one basket. But God does just the opposite. The Bible says God wants us to put all our eggs in one basket. He has taken all the risk upon himself, and he wants you to be convinced that when you put your eggs in his basket, you're safe, no matter what the world says. So I'm going to start us off with a little prayer. Um, Lord God, please be with us in this message today that we would teach truth in a way that is pleasing to you and that by your spirit you would cause us to apply that truth to our hearts in a way that helps us grow in Christ. Amen. So I am going to read uh, the passage from which I'm going to preach. Uh, it's Romans 5 verses 9 uh, through 11 and I'm going to put up on, or they've put up on the slide a, a little few more verses so that we can put it into context. Follow along with me as I read, please. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more now that we are reconciled Shall we be saved by his life? So let me ask, uh, how many of you saw the World Series? Okay, don't be shy. Raise your hands. It's spiritual to look at the World Series. How many of you saw, um, there we go, game seven? Wasn't that an exciting World Series? Well, I want to show you uh, a cover from Sports Illustrated. The cover is dated June 30, 2014. So that's three years before the World Series. Now, just to put it in context, that previous season, the Houston Astros had lost approximately 100 games. So on this cover, it says, 
your 2017 World Series champs. You see that? The man swinging the bat there is right fielder George Springer. And if you look at it, it says MVP of the 2017 World Series. Well, the Houston Astros are the World Series champs 2017, and George Springer was the MVP of that series. Now, let me tell you a little bit about, first of all, I am not telling you to worship, to worship Sports Illustrated. I do think you ought to buy it and read it, but not worship it. Uh, so let me tell you a little bit about the Houston Astros and George Springer. As you know, there's the American League and the National League, and they have a championship series. The winner of each meet in the World Series. So in the American League championship series, George Springer, the current MVP, batted 111. That's, that's my batting average. <laughs> uh, he stutters terribly. He's a spokesperson, a true spokesperson for Camp Say, the Stuttering Association for the Young. During the series, his batting average was 379, meaning that for every 10 times he came up to bat, he either struck out or hit a ball that caused him to be out. But almost four times out of 10, he got a hit, and that's a 379 average. The Astros' collective batting average for the World Series was 230. Collectively, they came to bat 244 times and struck out 54 times. The Astros' first baseman, Yuli Gurriel, who's Cuban, is suspended for the coming season because of a racial slur he made during the current World Series, the, the most recent World Series. My point is twofold, that back in 2014, when that cover came out, nobody believed that to be true. And secondly, even in the World Series, when they played great baseball, they were a flawed team. Hence the statistics I just gave you. They made a bunch of mistakes, but they are today the World Series champs. And if you saw game seven, the, the deciding game, at that last out, do you remember the picture of the Houston Astro players flooding the field, jumping and shouting and throwing their baseball gloves up in there? They were elated at their win. The batting average didn't matter. George Springer's 111 in the championship series didn't matter. They had won the World Series. Now, I know that they did not worship Sports Illustrated. But I'm also telling you that after a 100-game season loss, from then until 2017, they would pick up that magazine cover and they would remind themselves that it's possible. And that on dark days and dark moments, it would remind them what the hope was. And they, it, it caused them to have confidence in what they were doing. And this is just a human magazine. Let me tell you, the writer, Sports Illustrated is wrong more than 70% of the time. This is just a wonderful coincidence.
But the Bible is true all the time. And God wants us to live our lives with the expectation that when we meet Christ, either at death or if we're alive when he comes back, we're going to jump and shout like the Houston Astros. We're going to throw our car keys, our gloves, our bags up in the air, and we're just going to be shouting with joy for what has come to pass. Our series is Have Confidence in God. This is just one sermon in the series that Stephen started. So many of us have two fears. The first fear I alluded to at the very beginning of putting all our eggs in one basket, that's not an unreasonable fear. In fact, we are taught that wisdom is not to put all eggs in one basket. The second thing we fear is a realization that we are our own biggest obstacle to our goals. Maybe that goal is growth in Christ. In Shakespeare's great dramas, the lead actors always have one tragic flaw that does them in. And we have that fear, too, that you and I are going to blow it. When I was a young Christian, the man who was my first discipler had an affair with his wife's best friend. And that husband was a CHP officer, which meant he carried a gun. And when I heard that what Ron had done, and Ron and I met at least once a month, he really did pour his life into me. And I was so distressed at what he had done. I was talking with my wife, and I said, listen, if Ron failed, I might as well go ahead and have an affair and get it over with, because my failure is inevitable. I mean, it's that stupid reasoning, but I'm telling you, I'm ashamed to say that's how I, and my wife looked at me and she said, look, the fact that he failed, doesn't mean that you have to fail. And it was like a new thought. I said, oh, (laughs) you're right. Because I was wondering, why try? And Paul's audience may have been struggling with these same issues. Why try? I mean, I've, I've looked behind me at how I have lived I look around me at how I am living, it doesn't give me all that hope in myself. So Paul writes these verses. One of our our church members, Kylie Lee, has a phrase which I've always loved, and she calls it the gospel package. What Christ has done for us, what Christ is doing in us, and what Christ seeks to do through us. And I'm going to talk about the first two. So, my first point is that Christ saved us in his weakness. This is what Paul is saying. And because of his death on the cross, we have no fear of facing God's wrath at the day of judgment because we have been saved by Jesus' life, both by his completed and justified life on earth 
and his ongoing mediation on our behalf in heaven. So two things have occurred simultaneously. First, God has sovereignly declared us righteous. This is a divine legal transaction. Because God has declared us righteous, there's no appeal, there's no higher review, it is irreversible, it's done, finished for all time. There is no what we call in the law after acquired evidence. If a person has been exonerated, but there's evidence that you find that upon reasonable diligence you couldn't have found before, you can use it against that person in a new trial. We don't have any of that. So the second thing that has occurred of the two simultaneous acts is that Jesus brings us into covenantal relationship with himself based on his character and his promises. And again, there's no appeal, there's no higher review, it's irreversible, it's done, finished for all time, there are no changed circumstances and no after acquired evidence. And Jesus accomplished this for us in his weakness. Paul is saying this, while we were sinners, enemies of God, and strangers to his glory and promise, God loved us and sent his only begotten son to die for us and to give us eternal life. In Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8, Paul writes this about Christ Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, that is, be held on to jealously, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus entered the world as a newborn babe, he entered in weakness. He was born to a teenage girl of no particular moment. Her, her family nor her husband's family had any particular status, wealth, education, power, or influence in Israel. She was, for our purposes, a nobody along with the father. He was born in a stable surrounded by animals because no one would take them in. And the only people who knew about his birth were some foreigners who came from a distance, some shepherds, and some cows. He was born in weakness. He died in weakness, captured and bound by temple guards, tried, beaten, and then crucified by mortal men as a common criminal. Remember, Two thieves were crucified on each side of him. He was just a common criminal. And he never lifted a finger in his own defense. So when he went on trial before um, the two high priests, then the Sanhedrin, and then Herod, and then Pilate, and then back to Pilate again, he never raised a finger or word in his defense. He died in weakness, crucified on a cross with people passing by, making jokes about his suffering and saying things. He saved others, 
let him come down and save himself. This is utter weakness. And yet, in that utter weakness, he accomplished our salvation and reconciled us to the Lord God Almighty for all eternity. Let me tell you what this means for us. It means I don't deserve to be saved, but no one does. I'm not worthy, but no one is. Who deserves that God should die for him or her? I will never be able to earn my salvation. Even in eternity, no one will ever come even remotely close to earning or deserving the salvation we have been given. Now, lest you think this is bad news, I want you to meditate on it. This is incredibly good news because God does not ask us to deserve our salvation or earn it, and he knows we don't deserve it and can't earn it. By grace, he has removed this requirement for us forever. This text is not about futility. It is about the utter joyous absence of any need to earn or deserve our status with Christ. Now, if you're like me, there are things in your life, your thoughts or your actions, that you would be horrified if other people found out about it. You, knew, you know or suspect that if they knew this about you, they would turn away in anger, disgust, or disapproval. We fear that people would not love us anymore or respect us anymore if they knew all the truth about us. It's a terrifying thought, the fear of being found out. But since God saved us knowing everything about us, before we were born, he knew every sinful thought, every sinful deed, every sinful action, and nonetheless saved us with this perfect knowledge. It allows us to be free and open with God. My wife introduced me to Psalm 139.16, and it says, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were no days. So before he created time, God knew every sinful thought, word, and deed I would commit, and yet save me. Do you see how liberating this is. Now, our actions may disappoint God, but they never cause him to turn away and disgust. It never causes, God is not up in heaven saying, look what McCurin did again. Why did I save this nut? Ooh, I'm gonna write him out of my book. I'm gonna blot him out. He doesn't do that. Um, my wife and I had been married 46 years, and the 40, for her it's a sentence, for me it's a marriage. In the 44th year, in the 44th year, I finally got up the nerve to share with her 
something from my past. I was afraid that if I, I finally, <laughs> it sounds weird, trusted the relationship enough, was so certain of her steadfast love that if I disclosed this, it would not alter our relationship. And I disclosed it, and she said, I don't care, I love you. Now what's my reaction? I love her all the more. See what this does with us with God? There is nothing we can do that's going to surprise God. I know I disappoint him occasionally, but I have never, ever surprised God. So God does not command us to live lives worthy of our salvation. Paul wrote in Ephesians 4, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, to live a life consistent with our new status. So let me give an example. When I was single, I behaved as a single man. But when I married, I actually began behaving as a husband. I came home after work on time. I even called up a life insurance guy on my own and bought life insurance. I called him up. I put the toilet seat down after I use it. But Jesus accomplished this for me in his utter weakness. Now, he dragged a person into the kingdom who had no interest in him. I was not a seeker. I was a fleer. But thank God that God is a pursuer. So Paul is saying, look, if God brought us into fellowship with himself through Jesus while we were sinners... And while he was weak, bound, beaten, helpless, so to say, what more will he do for us? Now that he is reigning in his might and glory and power from heaven. So this brings us to my next point in the sermon. So the first point is he saved us in his weakness. And my second point is that we are continually being saved by Christ. Now, I don't mean save, lose salvation, save, lose salvation. I'm not talking about that. It's another word of saying, way of saying that we're being sanctified. We're being transformed. He's bringing us into deeper and deeper fellowship with him through our lifetime. And he's doing this from a position of might and glory. So in 1 John 2, 1, John writes... My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And in Hebrews 1.3, the writer says of Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of him of the majesty on high. So let me give you an analogy. Let's say that we win in watching the Houston Astros, but they have been charged to play a third grade 
uh, t-ball team. All right, but they're told you got to play on your knees. You had to bat with the opposite hand, and we're going to put one patch over your eye. But even then, they win. All right, in that weak state. And then we say, okay, now, no games, no tricks. I want you to play the same t-ball team full bore. Use all your skills, no limitations. And somebody came to you and said, where would you put your money? It doesn't take a real smart guy to say, I'm going to put my money with the Houston Astros, not on the third grade t-ball team. That is just the barest com comparison of Christ in his weakness and Christ in his glory. God says, I want you to have such confidence in me that you feel comfortable. You will take the risk of putting all your eggs in one basket. So what does this mean for us? We are going to progress spiritually because God is presently at work in us and through us by his Holy Spirit and he will bring it to pass. It is productive for us. It is wise for us, therefore, to try to be better. Yes, we're going to take, if you're like me, and I don't mean to curse you that way, but I take one step forward and often two steps back. And sometimes I don't even move forward and take two steps back. But we have this hope that there's this cover that says, Barbara, daughter of God. Marion Francis Catherine Donahue, victorious in Christ. Look at this scene in heaven. Now, we look at our present situation, doesn't look too great. Let me give you an analogy. Uh, we live in a fallen world. There are temptations and obstacles all around us. Guys, you know you really, you may really want to be sexually pure. What happens when you open a magazine? When you turn on a television? We're just bombarded with images that tend to push us in the direction of looking at women as sex objects and not as the children of God. We're surrounded by that. Young women, you want to be sexually pure. And these same images come at you. This is what it means to be attractive. And you go, oh, but that may do things I don't want to do. So we, in effect, are growing up for Christ in a hostile environment. It's inhospitable to our spiritual growth to the point that we can sometimes despair and say, why try all around me, I'm, I've got bad examples. Maybe the family culture is an environment not inducive to spiritual growth. Maybe the friends or the work environment is so toxic that instead of meditating on Christ, you feel like you're fighting for survival every day when you go to work. So let me give you a true story about a gentleman in Orange County named Wayne Daniels. Wayne Daniels loves 
tulips. And he had a passion for tulips, and he decided, I want to grow tulips. Unfortunately, Wayne Daniels lives in Orange County. Orange County is a particularly inhospitable environment for tulips. It's the wrong soil, too much sun, too hot, not enough water. And so he was told this is a dumb idea. He acknowledged that, and he went on and he planted tulips anyway until he became famous in his town in Orange County because his whole yard, he had a big yard, was just, he planted, ready for, and grew 2,500 tulips. 2,500 tulips. You and I are God's tulips planted in a hostile environment. Wayne Daniels didn't quite know what he was doing, but he would fertilize, he would water, he would dig out leaves, he would fertilize, he would water. He would constantly hover over those tulips to guarantee their growth. Now, Wayne Daniels is a sinner, and he's dealing with tulips. The almighty God who reigns in heaven, who holds the world together by the might of his power, his simple word calls the universe in being, knows that you and I are in a hostile environment. There are things against us, and God comes at us every day, planting, fertilizing, building. I know some of you feel like you've stepped in fertilizer every now and then. Well, but I don't. Okay, so you are, God is creating and changing our environment in such a way that he, he guarantees our growth. And our role, in part, is manyfold, and we don't have time to go into that. That's another message, but part of our role is this. We trust that God will do as he promised, that he will bring us in his image, he will bring us in his, to his kingdom, free from sin, having in fact, not in a legal transaction, but in fact, the character of Christ. He will bring it about. So this means for us that when we have those failures, which we will have, we don't have to beat ourselves up, nor when we see a friend who failed. We are not to go to them and beat them up. We say, yes, I failed, but Jesus Christ who died for me has succeeded in the very area where I am failing, and I am grabbing on to him. I am walking with him. I don't know how it's going to turn out here, but I know the end that I'm going to be throwing my glove up in the celestial heavens, rejoicing at what Christ has been able to bring about. So let me tell you something that just happened on Friday. I'm sorry, on Thursday. I went to my mother's bedroom, and my job, among others, is to throw open the, the uh, drapes in the morning so all the sunlight will shine in. So Thursday morning, I go in, and it's got those rods, you know? So I pull back the rods to let the sunshine, sunlight in. And right there in front of me was our next-door neighbor in her bathrobe, right outside our window. And she went, ha, ah, and I went, ha. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> and this is the world's best neighbor. Well, I'm going, 
Barbara, well, it turned out that her cat, who's really a feral cat, it, he, but she calls it her cat, had somehow climbed onto our roof, and we have a sloping roof, and she couldn't coax him off the roof to, to come back home. So I said, I'm gonna come out and help you, and we did all kinds of things. We, kitty, kitty, kitty. I hate cats, by the way, I'm just telling you. I'm a dog person. But because I love Barbara, I'm going, okay, here, kitty, kitty. We couldn't get that cat to do anything, but he would be on the edge. He wanted to jump, but the distance was too great. He could not make it. I said, Barbara, do you have a plank? And she said, I think so. And she did happen to have planks. So I went over, I got one that was about six feet long, about a foot and a half wide. And it was long enough to stretch from the edge of my roof across the fence that separated our properties at a good slope, but not steep, so that the cat could walk down and easily jump down. So we put, I just knew that even this dumb cat would get the idea. So I put the plank up on the roof, and I knew that the cat would just go, oh, I'm saved, and walk to the plank and come across. And so here's the plank, and the cat would go, never got on the plank. I said, Barbara, do you have any cat food? Yeah, okay. So she got a bowl of cat food. We put it at one end of the plank, the downward slope side, to coax the cat onto the plank to safety. That didn't work. So I had, the, the bottom of the plank was supported by her fence and a, and a ladder that I had. So I climbed up the ladder. I'm not sure what the weight rating was, but it didn't collapse. I was worried, but anyway, I took the food and I sprinkled it as far out on the plank as I could toward our roof line with the thought that now the cat would follow the food to the bowl and just jump off. Never did. But let me tell you, that's what God does with us. He is continually wooing us. He is continually to... And of the, course, the, the plank is Jesus Christ. He has covered the divide that we cannot leap. And God says, Luigi, come. Caleb, just, just come. Whatever, whatever it is we're struggling with. I don't know, but pornography is not a particular problem for me. It's just never bothered me. But greed is, selfishness is. And God is constantly saying, I'm going to help you grill, Bill. I just want you to walk across the plank, trusting that it will support your weight. I am wooing, I'm creating for you an environment in which you can experience tulip quality growth. And I have to tell you, too often I'm like that cat and I walk by God's rescue. I might put my foot out toward it and I don't take the step that sometimes I should take. But thank God that God plants the tulips and he has taken on himself the responsibility despite the hostile environment to make sure that we come to full growth. So that leads me to the next point in my message, in the final point. We will be saved. Christ will bring us to fulfillment in his might and glory. In 1 John 3, it says, Beloved, 
We are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. So there's this one great section in the Old Testament where the high priest Joshua is standing before God. And Satan is there at Joshua's shoulders telling God, look how terrible he is. He's so hypocritical. He's so inconsistent. And just saying truthful things about Joshua. And Jesus comes, takes off his cloak of righteousness, and lays it across the shoulders of Joshua and making him new. This is what Christ does for us. Um, he has promised by the cross, he does that through justification. Everything needed to accomplish our salvation has been accomplished for us by Jesus Christ. And then he says, your confidence, because of that, you can also be confident that I'm going to fulfill my promise to bring you to fruition in Christ, to fulfillment, that you will have eventually the character of Christ. Will it be hard? Yes. Is the environment hostile? Yes. Will we be inconsistent? Yes. Will we sometimes in our life lack the evidence that we are a tulip under God's hands? Yes. I'm not freeing us from responsibility, but I'm saying because God has a grip on us, every effort we make in him will bear fruit. We are going to win this thing because of what Christ has done for us and because of what Christ is doing in us. God will succeed in transforming us fully for all eternity. It will happen. God has promised it. The present evidence may be scanty. It may even contradict God's promise. Family and friends may laugh at the idea. Our coworkers may shake their heads in bewilderment, if not disgust. Uh, we're saying, well, we're not going to get drunk. We're not going to sleep around. Why? Well, because I want to please God. Ugh. For all we know, God may be standing in front of, I mean, Satan may be standing in front of God right now saying, look at Bill McCurran. <laughs> How could you identify with him? Did you see what he did last week? Did you see him get angry at his wife for no reason and you call him a saint? Paul writes in Philippians 1, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace. So here we are with just an ordinary human baseball team, the Houston Astros, and I can guarantee you they have that cover somewhere 
up in their lockers at home and they remind themselves, man, I had a lousy day at the plate today. I let a ground ball go right between my legs. I misjudged a fly ball. We lost. We have four losses in a row. And they pick up that magazine cover and it gives them hope. And that's just a secular magazine. It will not last. But the word of God, because it is the word of God, will be changeless and will last throughout eternity. And we can look at it and we can say, yes, I am sure of this. That God who began a good work in me will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's right for me to feel this way because I am a partaker in the grace of Christ. When you see a friend who is just, maybe she's struggling with anorexia or bulimia, maybe her self-image is horrible, she looks back at her life and she looks back and there's wreckage all behind her and ahead seemingly nothing but obstacles. If that woman or if that man is not in Christ, you can tell them there's a way to make all things new. There's a way to be guaranteed a future brighter than we can ever imagine, and that is Jesus Christ. If that person already knows Christ, we can tell him or her, yes, all of that is real, but the greater reality is that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until that day when we awake in his life.